Bringing you everything revolving around the world of racing, it's time to dump the clutch. On your toes, on your toes, on your toes, on your toes, are four wide. Now you ought to be my kid kicked your ass. Am I saying anything that's not true? I'm gonna bust his ass. Yes, For sure. we had a massive target on our back. There's your nickelback concert. He's gone and rolls into the fence just over the finish line and keeps it going. There you go, shouting Creed. The showstopper. Mr. Pete, uh, credentials. So tell me, introduce yourself to the audience, uh, who you are, uh, and a little bit of background to how you ended up in North Carolina. Sure, ma'am. Um, Sean Pete, I'm from Vancouver Island, British Columbia. Uh, came to the United States on a hockey scholarship. Uh, could barely skate, so that uh, was only going to take you so far. So played uh, college hockey at Dartmouth, uh, kind of went... Had the opportunity to go to corporate America and, or go play in the minors. Got a glimpse of corporate America, so the minors was an easy decision. Um, and yeah, I had a lot of fun. I was in, uh, played in the Pittsburgh Penguins system in, uh, in the American Hockey League. Went to the Calder Cup Finals in 2001. Um, was the only undrafted player there. And um, the next year, came back to camp, made the team, team made a trade. Um, and it was pretty clear who was, uh, who was going down. So I went down to, uh, I was sent to North Carolina and that's how I got here. Um, and that was roughly what year? That was 2000 and, uh, that was 2002. Okay. And, uh, I was involved in a huge opening night brawl and, uh, when and I got down here, cause I was, first of all, I was not happy to be demoted and it just happened that we played against a guy that I'd played it. Mm -hmm. Princeton for four years. Oh, okay. That was always kind of, you know, bad talk. And there's no fighting yeah. in college. So uh, it was four years of frustration coupled with the demotion, um, which led to like an 18 game suspension. And is that a record? Yeah, at the time it was, yeah. Oh, nice. yeah. So not one my parents were proud of, but mm -hmm. um, uh, <laughs> it goes without saying. Um, and, uh, you know, when, when I'm suspended, I met someone in the stands from NASCAR, um, you know, Tim Jones, who's still. Uh, to this day, works uh, works in the series, and uh, he was just like, "Hey, when your when your dad comes down, because my dad has a garage on Vancouver Island, and uh, he's like, I'll just show you around." Mm -hmm. And um, when we came down, Bill Davis Racing at the time was still yep. was still going, so we were walking around there, and the guy showing me around was uh, uh, a guy named Frank Starr. Took me out to pit practice; it wasn't going great, so the crew chief was like, "Hey, get the get the hockey player in here." And uh, it kind of just went from there, you know, and I thought, hey, I'll do it for, you know, a year or so. And yeah. that was 16 years ago. And you started over the wall, what position? As a jackman. As a jackman. Yeah. And were you always a jackman? I was always a jackman. So I was, I would say I spent about six to eight weeks learning it. Uh -huh. And then um, I got to jack my first truck race with uh, the Keselowskis. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, it's funny, I just spent... Um, Gosh, I spent 18 years trying to get to the National Hockey League, and I got to NASCAR in about eight weeks. <laughs> no, it's changed a lot now. You know what I mean? With all the athletes in it now, um, my timing was certainly on point because it would be much more difficult to get into it now. And was this, uh, I can't remember the exact year, Ray Everingham was starting to build the what we now call as a, a normal pit crew, but they're getting college athletes and professional athletes and mixing and matching. So were you falling right in that position? I was time? right on the backside of the Rainbow Warriors. Okay. You know what I mean? So when I got to Ganassi, it was, 
you know, myself, Doug Reapy, Eric Maycroft, so a bunch of baseball players, yep. um, you know, and, and it was um, it was interesting, you know, because the mechanics had pitted the race cars up until then. So, yep. um, yeah, it was just like, again, it was just something I never thought in my life that I would do. And um, <clears throat> I just said, you know, I'm going to do it as long as it's, I'm having fun mm-hmm. at it. And that was... So going back to a previous statement, what didn't you like about corporate America? Um... I don't know. I think, you know, I'm I'm from a really blue collar family, mm-hmm. right? And the things that we valued um, kind of disappeared even when I was at Dartmouth, right? Yeah. I'd never been around that type of wealth before. And um, it didn't intimidate me. I think it, it more disappointed me. You know what I mean? I think, um, you know, you'd run into kids that just hadn't spoken to their parents in, you know, years or whatever. Yep. Or, um, you know, it, I think it was the first time in my life where I realized that money was not what was going to motivate me because I'd seen all these kids around me with money that were um, just inherently unhappy. Um, so when I did the corporate recruiting thing, I went and, and again, I, I may have just had a bad experience, but the the, the person I sat down with was just, um, was just so pretentious. And, and I was like, I'm not doing this for the next 30 years of my life. And you were how old at this time? Roughly? I was uh, 22. And were you always pretty much self-aware about what you liked and didn't like and what you wanted to do? I mean, that's that's a pretty profound statement or thought to have when you're 22 yeah. years old. You know, I think I think I've always had. First of all, I have great parents, um, and, and I think uh, there's certain things that they instilled to me, and, and I have I have certain convictions about certain things, and um, I just we were really happy, but we did not have a lot of money. And um, so that wasn't going to be what motivated me. When I got, when I really got into the middle of it, I went with. Um, there was three of us from one team that went, and the other two guys I saw change pretty dramatically. Right, like they really liked, you know, the fancy cars and clothes and, and, mm-hmm. and what what kind of went with that. And it's funny, I just I went the other way. I just um, it just didn't seem real to me. Yep. And um, so getting back to the NASCAR side. Um, you've been at Ganassi. I think you were at Ganassi for a while. Yep. Went to a couple other teams or one other team maybe, then came back. So when you came back to Ganassi, what are you doing now? What are your What are your responsibilities with the team? So I'm one of the pit crew coaches over at, at Chip Ganassi Racing. They had reached out to us. Um, you know, they're struggling with their pit crew department, and they had asked uh, Mike Metcalf and myself to come and see if uh, see if we'd be interested in, in in trying to tackle it. And you and Mike, when did you guys meet up? We met up uh, the second day at Red Bull. Um, I missed a uh, missed a ferry leaving home, so I didn't get to the first day at Red Bull. I got there the second day, and uh-huh. uh, Mike and I were on the eighty three with Brian Vickers. Yep. Um, and, and I look at my life. You know, I think um, you want a strategy for life. Find the best human being you can find, yep. and just stick with that guy as long as you can. Yep. And to my good fortune, that was Mike Metcalf. He his vibe is. Is pretty oh, unique. He's, he, he just, um, you know, it, it's funny. Like when we recruit, right? We say we put nothing above being a world-class human being, because um, that's what Mike is. You know yeah. what I mean? Like you can't not be around him and want to treat people better, yeah. eat better, sleep more. You know what I mean? Like he's just yeah. one of those guys that's just so inspiring that um, yeah. he lifts up the group, right? And he's freakishly strong. Freakishly strong. <laughs> Uh, freakishly humble. Yep. You know what I mean? Like there's that that saying, uh, walk softly but carry a big stick. Yep. I mean, he's the epitome of that. Yep. So, okay. So um, 
uh, we're moving on here. I want to move rather quickly because you've been in NASCAR. You've seen all the stuff. Uh, when I first uh, met you, I think shortly afterwards, um, you you tipped me off to what you were doing on the side. And you're, you and Mike are very passionate about this. So do you want to talk a little bit more about your deck leadership program? Sure, sure. I think, um, you know, deck leadership, uh, deck stands for diversity, efficiency, culture, and kindness. And, and Mike and I strongly believe that those are the four horsemen of the American workplace. Yep. You know what I mean? There's, there's more heart attacks on Monday morning than any other time during the week in this country. And that's because people hate going to work, yep. right? There's just this stress that comes with going to work on Monday morning. And that's a direct reflection of leadership. Mm -hmm. You know, we've kind of lost our way a little bit, you know, and, um, you know, we, we had an opportunity to speak at the NFL Combine. And I think when you do anything in life, it's just your work, right? So we went up there and not thinking that we, you know, anyone was going to be that interested in what we, what we had to say. But after we got done, there were about 30... NFL, you know, trainers and doctors that stuck around asking us questions, and um, we were leaving the convention hall that day. And this guy tracks us down in the hallway, and he, uh, you know, he says, "Hey guys, I just got to catch up with you. I, I took more notes in your 30 minutes than I had the first day in this conference." And we get into this really great talk with him. And at the end of it, I'm like, "Well, hey man, who are you with?" And he's like, "I'm with the New England Patriots." <laughs> and right then, I was like, "Well, Val validation of, point, absolutely." And I was like, "Well, actually, we should be asking you questions." Um, mm -hmm. But it made us think that, you know, maybe maybe there is something to say. You know what I mean? And when you look at the pace of things, right? You know, like speed has become the new currency of business, yep. right? Well, our guys are tasked with changing four tires and putting two cans of fuel in a race car in 12 seconds. As far as efficiency goes, there's they're pretty unmatched in this country at what they do. Mm -hmm. um, so we're like, well, let's see if we can do this. You know what I mean? And it's... You know, again, we're attacking this thing not from a systems perspective, but from a human being perspective. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Of what, you know, like I said, diversity, efficiency, culture, and kindness, these things that we're lacking. And so you've seen the corporate side. I think Mike has also seen the corporate side as well. And you've seen the athletic side with the NASCAR. When did this come together? And when did you guys say, we really need to like package this up and, and make this thing work? Was um, it immediate or then and you've been talking about it for a while or? Well, I think you, you, we just paid attention, right? You know, I think, um, you know, I was reading something when somewhere where uh, Rupert Murdoch had come out and said, you know, it's no longer big business versus small business. It's fast business versus slow. Right. And you start seeing all these um, references to speed and efficiency and, um, you know, corporate culture saying we need to operate like pit crews. Well, my mom got a hold of an article about F1 pit crews, they're going into emergency rooms over in Europe and streamlining processes from the ambulance doors to the operating table. Mm -hmm. And we were just like, you know, people have to understand what makes those cogs turn, right? And again, like I said, it's not process. It's inspiring each other and, and, and all these things that are we are all capable of and are, are innate to our tribal biology. Yep. We've just kind of lost our way. And so um, working on the corporate side, most of my career, I have seen more, more places than others where chemistry comes into, it, like chemistry is everything. Sure. And, you know, I've heard of the, 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 the two pizza rule. Like if you can't feed your team for more than two large pizzas, you have too many people on your team. And I fully believe that if you have the right people in the room, you, you can accomplish massive things. So when you look for 
new pit crew members, what are the first few markers that you're looking for that you can maybe foresee if they're going to be a good fit culturally? Well, that's a great question. And like I said before, you know, like for us, we put nothing about being a world-class human being. Yeah. That That's the number one thing. And that means, um, for us, that means um, your integrity, your kindness. You know, there's things that are built in too, right? Like we need to, have you to make sure that you have mental fortitude um, and resilience and all these things that would make you a big, a good pit crew member. Mm-hmm. But we have got to start with, like I said, the, these things that, that mean a lot to us. You know, when we first got to Ganassi, you know, we weren't struggling because we didn't have we were devoid of talent we had some really talented people there but we were we were lazy and we were entitled and we were and we had to change that and that we'd done that even some points to this day with less talented people but they're willing to outwork those other guys so we have a very carefully curated first day experience Mm -hmm. where what we're looking to do is remove the representative right so anytime someone shows up to a coach it's like you show up on a first date, right? You, you're showing up as the representative of yourself, the very best version of yourself, right? right? Well, we're trying to shed that. We're trying to crack that and get to, okay, what is this person really about, mm-hmm. right? You know, um, Dave Ramsey has a great quote about how even a donkey can look like a thoroughbred for an interview, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> we're trying to figure out if this guy's a donkey or a thoroughbred. And have you ever, even though you have all these processes in place and you've, you've You've seen how people tick in all different forms of their life. And when they come to you, have you ever made a bad decision when hiring someone? And if so, how quickly do you get rid of that person? Oh, all the time. Uh, have we made bad decisions? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, how quickly? We we hired our first year. We hired a guy that was considered one of the best tire carriers in NASCAR. Mm-hmm. And um, been doing it a long time and just was not the fit we were looking for mm-hmm. you know a couple outbursts and you could cl- you could clearly see he felt he was above where he was at mm-hmm. and this was five races into our brand new career as coaches right um so mike and i make a decision we're gonna you know we messed up you know what i mean we're gonna we're gonna change it so it'll be for the better so we call him in we're like hey we're gonna make a change on the car mm-hmm. and I've tried, i'll never forget it he's like okay good who is it <laughs> I had to tell. I was like zero ah, self awareness. Correct, right. correct. And right. I was like, oh, man, I'm really sorry, but it's you. And it, it, it. Um, you know, I think one thing that Mike and I have not got everything mm-hmm. correct, but I think one of our strong suits is we are not, we're not afraid to admit when we fail, yeah. right? And and I think, you know, we're in the failure business, right? We're asking our guys to change four tires, two cans of fuel in 12 seconds, right? We, we operate on the verge of what's humanly possible. We know that failure's coming, but it's how we reference that failure, you know, address it, move past it, and move on mm-hmm. that's gonna determine whether we're successful or not, mm-hmm. right? Like there's a misconception in society that, you know, there's a finality to failure, which is BS, right? Yep. Like we look at all these successful people, the reason we look up at them is because they're standing on a mountain of failures, right? right? <laughs> they just didn't let that failure define them or stop them. Right. So, you know, if, if we, you know, in the case that we make a bad hire, mm-hmm. um, you know, we want to give that person every chance, right? So we won't let them just kind of hang out there. We'll be like, look, we're mm-hmm. missing it here, here, and here. If they don't clean that up, we'll, you know, we'll reiterate that. Hey, we're missing it here, here, and here. And then, um, 
and then you got to go. So then explain to me how valuable your development system is on allowing that person. You may see athletic greatness in them, but does that development process um, let them taste what you guys are all about to make sure that they do fit in? Well, it does. I mean, we're, I think we're the only NASCAR team where if you come in as a development guy, you practice with the cup guys, mm-hmm. right? Like we have 26 guys out at practice. And that way, you know, our older guys will weigh in on the development of our younger guys. And our mm-hmm. younger guys can see the way our older guys carry themselves yep. and kind of understand, you know, what's expected of them. Mm-hmm. You know, I think one thing that um, we really try to do is we outline our expectations. You know, so many people get hired to jobs or to pit crews or whatever it might be. And they're just put in spot and be like, okay, go. Mm-hmm. Right? Never having understood what the expectations are. We outline our expectations, everything from how you're going to dress at the racetrack to what your Twitter avatar could or should be. You know what right. I mean? Like we, we, we really are intentional about our culture yep. and it attracts a certain person. Yep. And, you know, it probably dissuades a lot of people as well. Yep. But that's how we, we decided we wanted to do it. Yeah. And so dealing with the egos with professional sports, um, so the racing season is 36, 38 weeks. You guys are going every week, maybe with the exception of Christmas, but you're always practicing. You're always doing something. There's always a gun in your hand and a jack in your hand. So how often are you doing something to give back to the community? Because I think this is a really vital point to bring up on helping to keep everyone's egos in a nice. Well, absolutely. And, and, uh, you know, we're super proud of our group, right? They won the Comcast Award yep. two years ago, um, which is NASCAR's version of the Walter Payton Award. And they basically gave you $60,000 and then you donated that to a charity? Correct. Yep. Correct. So if you think about it, um, there's only a, f- a few things that really like speak to our tribal biology as far as what makes us happy, right? Mm-hmm. And it's, if, if you look at something called self-determination theory, it's to be competent at what you do, um, to be authentic in your life and to be connected to others. Yep. If you have those three things in line, you have the opportunity to be happy, right? Yep. And when we look at our guys, at the end of the day, all we're doing is pit race cars, mm-hmm. right? Like we've said before, we're not solving world peace. We're not curing cancer. And we truly felt like there needed to be a bigger piece of that to create purpose, yep. right? And along with that purpose, we needed perspective. So what volunteering does for us, and, and, and this is a selfish intention, is that it gives us both those things. So, yeah. you know, we've taken our guys up to Barium Springs Orphanage, right, to, to volunteer up there. Mm-hmm. Um, we've taken them to Columbia when Columbia flooded. We, they've done Meals on Wheels. It's hard to complain about making six figures when you're rolling up with, with two plastic, plastic right. trays and two little milk things, and that's going to be this person's meal for the next two days yep right and that that perspective is profound right because yep. then you, you it's really hard to come through the door the next day and yep. complain about what you're doing and and that was something that i saw that um because i was fortunate to be a part of a couple of those experiences and there's not one person on your team that's even barely bitching or moaning that they're there it's it is they are actually the the, the exact opposite of that they're looking forward to doing that and there was a, I think a, a camp uh, with kids, and we were helping like load their bags right. on a bus. Camp care. And uh, they took over almost immediately. And not only were they doing what they needed to do, but they were in a very short twenty-second span of when they're talking with the kid and getting the kid on the bus. You know, building relationship and hey, how you doing? And making them feel, you know, air quotes normal 
but um, it, it it was really good to see that. And I, I'm not sure if that is happening in sports at all, other than maybe one or two times for the cameras. Mm-hmm. Um, but and that's even something I think Mike said in the past is usually you guys shy away from cameras. You would rather not do it in front of cameras. Correct. Yeah. I mean, I think Mike and I think like the true the true essence of giving is to is to kind of um, to do it with no thought of reward. Yeah. Right. So. You know, we've we've literally been in fights at work about not telling them this or not telling them that, <laughs> and um, you know, again, we've we've never had a problem going and doing those events, but you know, doing it and being undiscovered at it, there's a certain um, authenticity to that 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 makes it real for our guys, right? Yeah. Hey, we're not doing this for cameras. I've been to enough NASCAR events where you know you're building a playground, the superstar comes in. Wait till the cameras are rolling, bolts together two things on a picnic table, and then rolls out. Right. You know what I mean? And it looks yeah. like they, they care. And, and right. it, I just, um, again, we want to be authentic. We want this to be real because we need it to touch our guys. Yeah. And if it's fake, then it just doesn't go where we want it to go. And so when you build this camaraderie and you build this chemistry that works, tell me how that affects um, the team throughout the season, knowing the season is so damn long. Well, I mean, I think there's just, there's a, a mutual respect that goes through the group, right? And now, you know, again, we pit race cars from Valentine's Day to Thanksgiving. Yep. I'm not saying that we don't have our issues and things that arise. Mm-hmm. However, our culture is strong enough that when they do arise, our guys go to one another. Very rarely now do they come to us. Because they know if they come to us, we're just going to grab you two and put you in the same room with us anyways, right? right? So they just solve it on their own. Right. And, um, you know, I think... Uh, like I said, I think they're they genuinely enjoy each other's company. Like we have yep. very few sick days because yep. guys don't want to miss. You know, there's a lot of ridiculous stuff that goes on in our building. Yep. Our guys don't want to miss that. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, and that's when you know you have it kind of dialed in, right? Yep. And you know, and and what goes on through is there's a there's a a spirit of competition that's woven through that entire culture, right? Mm-hmm. And that's what makes us what we are and so the uh, the non-serious stuff but i still think speaks to the culture so talk about some of the fun things that you do every once in a while including dodgeball tournaments oh absolutely so we (laughs) you know i think we're blessed over there that um we have a perfect size dodgeball court so we'll play it out uh we'll play it out back one time and the guys will even get the janitors out there playing with us one time and well i think one of the funniest stories was there's a kid named shannon and the guys talked him into being out there and i got out there and i figured oh he's just allowed to play and he's a younger kid and, uh, and shannon was a custodian he was a yeah. custodian and uh, so he's playing and then all of a sudden his boss comes through the door and his boss is a big dude, right? Yeah. Like you, you know, you know Pete. Like right. Pete's pretty muscled. He looks like the Incredible Hulk without the green paint, right? <laughs> and he comes out the door and he yells at Shannon. Well, one of our guys hits him in the head with a dodgeball and says, "Hey, Pete, you're out." <laughs> so, but again, it, it's breaking up the monotony, right? So mm-hmm. on the first day of opening series, uh, excuse me, opening day of baseball season, we have a wiffle ball tournament up against the mm-hmm. up against the building. Um, on Canada Day, mm-hmm. we have a full-on uh, a draft, and uh, you know you have a month to come up with a team name. And some of the team names, there's no way I could even say on the podcast. Um, and then those get whittled down to four. Those four captains draft teams, and then on Canada Day, um, we have a hockey tournament. We take all the tires in the shop. We build a makeshift hockey rink outside. Yeah. Um, 
we, we had a stuffed beaver one time that came to the came to, we have a cup with all the teams that have won the the Ganassi Cup and um but that spread throughout the building. That one event spread throughout the building. It did. And um you know, it got upstairs to the carpet walkers. Yep. And um but I think that that is so important because I think it's very easy. Uh even even the building Ganassi's in, it's designed in a way where it segregates people. Correct. So the way to get around that as dumb as it sounds is to go have fun and easy as that sounds go have fun but this was an event where everyone can play and even if you didn't want to play you can hang out and watch there was always something to do or, or interact with someone during during office hours and i think that's key because a lot of companies will force like well hey we're going to have a happy hour at 5 30 make sure and be there like i don't want to go there like why can't we do this during normal work hours because this is the eight hours ish that i've dedicated to my company that the eight hours after that's my time you know so you know one thing we say is like you cannot mandate human brilliance you can't <laughs> yep. you can only inspire it yep. right but to inspire it you have to do things a different way mm-hmm. you have to plan so different or you have to care more or you have to you know I mean in the hockey tournament extending that to the building was all about that it was to get more people out talking to each other mixing up and, and you know what I mean kind of cross pollinating departments and, and you know allowing people to laugh and have fun at work you know because if we don't do that right like one of the things we challenge our guys with at work is their arrival mindset right we want you to arrive as the best version of yourself every single day Mm -hmm. when you put your hand on the door for two reasons right it's going to move our culture forward and when you don't like everyone has that person in their life that they see them coming to the door and you're like oh my god i gotta get out of here right yep and when that person comes in they unload on you Right, and it's usually you know about traffic or the barista missed up their coffee order or whatever. Mm-hmm. And what that person lacks is perspective, because they have no idea when they're talking to you. You know, if if, if you found out your wife had breast cancer or you yep. buried a, a son or yep. you know what I mean. So like your rival mindset, you know the 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 view we adopt for ourselves profoundly affects the way we live our life. And if we roll up to work and think ah, work's gonna suck, guess what? Work's gonna suck. Yeah. It's quantum physics. Yep. It's, it's it's no different of than you know people that are out shopping for a new car and all of a sudden they see all these new the, the cars they're looking for they mm-hmm. see them all over the place. Mm-hmm. It's the same thing. Right. You know? <laughs> so um, if if you don't want to tell me that's fine, but you explain to me when you hire someone the first few days, there's a couple built in. I don't want to say tricks, but things that you present them, like when it comes to, uh, on t- to being on time and things that they say and. Do you want to explain to me like how that is set up? So when someone comes on for the first day, what you're looking for to make sure that they are in fact the person that you interviewed? Absolutely. I think, um, you know, like a, a, a first day experience without giving up too much is, you know, again, we ask them to be there at eight o'clock. We see what time they arrive at. And that's going to, that, that speaks volumes about a person. Yes. Um, you know, and then we, what we do is we place a couple of different obstacles in their way where they have the opportunity to pitch in unprompted mm-hmm. or not. Right. They can either be lazy or proactive. Yep. If they're proactive, they move on. Yep. Um, you know, anyone that's ever been part of a high-functioning team, you know, a lot of times there's a lot of alpha males there. And we put them in a spot where, you know, there's a, a situation where you have to get the attention of the group. Yep. Right? And that's calling up 26 alphas. Mm-hmm. That's not an easy thing to do when you've only been on campus for four hours. Right. We see how they handle that situation. Yeah. Right. And then we, we sit them down and there's a questionnaire and we want to know things. We want to know, uh, tell me something you believe in that no one agrees with you on. 
You know, that's a great question. That's a great question because you can't plan for it, right? Right, right? And again, it's all that you know. We go back to talking about the representative and, and, and the donkey or the thoroughbred. If we're going to invest three years into a kid to get him up to speed, mm-hmm. we want to know quick. Yep. You know, and, and we want to know, you know, and then if they make it through that, you know, that first day, um, we're going to underpromise them too. You know, what I mean, we're going to be like, look, you're going to be here. You're going to probably do it for free for this many months. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's going to be rough. You're going to be in a van driving to mid Ohio or, or road America. Yep. Um, you know, cause this is not easy, right? You know, you've been part of this sport a long time too. It's a long season. Yep. You're giving up concerts, college football games. Yep. You're giving up a regular cadence of life to do this. Yep. So we want to know how everyone's in. Yep. We want to know how deep you're willing to be in. Yep. And, um, so getting back to the deck aspect of it, I think it's also really um, good for people to understand that this just isn't a theory that you guys developed and you're doing it and you're, you know, you know, quote unquote, selling your services to the local ice cream store. These are big companies that are looking for programs like this to help develop their team because they're dealing maybe not with a bunch of athletes, but still very alpha people and um, ego driven people. And they're dealing with billions of dollars usually. Correct. So do you want to tell me a little bit about some of the companies that you've done your programs for and some of the outcomes of that? Yeah, I mean, um, you know, it started, we've done companies as big as Merck Pharmaceutical, which mm-hmm. is which is obviously is a, is a whale. Um, yeah. You know, the Kansas City Chiefs, Novant Health, uh, Oatska Pharmaceutical. Uh, yeah. um, we've done it for Ohio University. Um, that, that was interesting. We actually, when we spoke at Ohio University, we spoke before Nike, before Nike. Oh, really? And uh, I remember going up and saying, I felt like Nickelback opening up for the Rolling Stones because <laughs> anytime you got to present in front of Nike, you're just like, oh my God, this right. is going to be a train wreck. Yeah. But, um, you know, what's interesting is um, the feedback we've had from it. You mm-hmm. know, and I think uh, one of the highest compliments we were paid was um, there was a one of the top officials from one of these pharmaceutical companies came up to us and said, he said, guys, look, he's like, I can hire an $80,000 speaker every month if I want. Mm-hmm. And he said, they lose me in the first five minutes because they're so slick and rehearsed. And he's like, what I found with you guys, it was it was 100% authentic, right? Like, it's not completely yep. polished, mm-hmm. but it's also, it's real. It's Mike and I didn't go to school to study leadership and then go to grad school and get a leadership degree or PhD and then read 15 leadership books and then go into companies and speak about leadership. Right. We, we failed at so many things <laughs> that it's almost made us experts to allow us to talk about, Hey, right. you know, and, and again, we succeeded at some things too, but mm-hmm. again, it's, it's speaking to the successes and failures and putting, putting a humanness to it. Um, that I think we're lacking a little bit. Yeah. You know what I mean? I think, um, you know, one of the, arguments but thought-provoking conversations that I had with with a c-level person was um, you know we're sitting there and he's like you know those are the soft arts you know those those don't move the needle and I'm like you're c-level right and he's like yeah yeah I am and I said uh, what does the c-level stand for and I think he was a CMO and he's like stands for chief and I said exactly and I said how did an Indian warrior ascend to the position of chief in his tribe and he's like, he thought, and he's like, how? I think because he just didn't want to think of the answer. And uh, I said, because he, he was concerned about the entirety of the group. 
right? And he would provide protection and clothing and shelter. And you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And as he did that, he'd earn respect in the group because that's what mattered to him most. It wasn't becoming chief. It was the group. And as a result, he became chief. Yep. Do you know what the number one characteristic of a psychopath is? Hmm. Profound lack of empathy. That's right. Yeah. So what sounds more like corporate America? The chief or the psychopath? So should it now be the PEO and yeah. the PMO and the PFO? Because if, if you want to be a C, and that's what I, I, if I could put one message out there, mm-hmm. all these people that aspire to C-level positions, act like a chief and you'll get there. I, that's extremely valuable information. I, um, it, it's, and we've run into some of the same people and it, you know, you question how they get to that position and you question how they operate and you question how they sleep at night. And, you know, ultimately I think it comes down to, you need to make a decision and you need to make a decision based on your set of values. And if you want to keep supporting that or not. And, um, and, and that gets back to self-awareness. And I think some people have it later in life. Some people have it early in life, but being able to figure that out early than not is only going to help your personal career, your professional career going forward. So that's uh, no, I agree. And I think, um, you know, I usually get bothered by it too, right? Cause you see this just abhorrent behavior that from people in positions of leadership, Yeah. excuse me. And, um, you know, one thing we always tell our guys is success doesn't reward the wrong person. And a lot of times we get pushback from that because people are like, oh, well, you know, this guy's making this much money and he's this and he's this and he's this. And you, what kind of tied it all together for me, there was a Maya Angelou quote, and, and I'm paraphrasing it, but she said to her success was loving what you do, loving how you do it, and loving who you are while you do it. I think, you know, and if you can put that into perspective, yep. then success doesn't reward the wrong person. Yep. And so you, there's a, um, a stat that, that you, that, that you have said over the years where a Daytona 500, you know, the first place and the fifth place is separated right. by, do you want to explain that really quick? Well, it's funny cause Mike and I laughingly refer to ourselves as the department of unrealistic expectations, right? <laughs> um, which I think everyone has a certain amount of that in, in their daily job. Right. right. Um, but people ask about time metrics involved in pit stops. You know, and we say, well, look, we, our tire changers have to hit five lug nuts in under a second. Right. So if you think about that, that's two tenths of a second per lug nut. Mm-hmm. So if you go ahead and blink your eyes, it's about two tenths of a second. Mm-hmm. So now these cars on the racetrack, if they're moving at 190 feet per second, two tenths of a second is 56 feet, right? If you look at the finishing order from the Daytona 500, 56 feet is the difference between first and sixth. The difference in prize money between first and sixth is $1.1 million. So we literally have $1.1 million riding on a lug nut hit. And I think that is ultra valuable because um, when I was with the team, uh, I would I would listen to some of your uh, meetings that you had because you guys just right around the corner and I think uh, NASCAR officially times the car on pit road off pit road so not necessarily your individual stop but just how long the car's on pit road and you I think knew a little bit more of what other teams were paying their groups like salary wise mm-hmm. and I think uh, there was a handful of years there where you were probably of the bigger teams probably paying your guys the least you had the smallest budget but you are continually beating the bigger teams. Like, how does that make you, or is that another, again, validation point to like what you're doing is spot on correct? Um, I think, I don't know that I would ever admit that it's spot on correct, but I think we're close, right? Yeah. And 
great teams don't have the best of everything, they make the best of everything. And mm -hmm. that was just the situation we're in, right? So we had to basically weaponize our culture. We had to do it more. We had to care more and we had to work harder and we had to do all these things because we, we were fighting some things that, you know, that we couldn't solve with just resources. Yeah. Because you um, do not have an open checkbook. No, we don't. And there are teams that do have open sure, checkbooks. Yeah. Sure. But the thing is, is it goes back to you, you can only inspire great efforts, right? You can't mandate them. You can't, you can't even incentivize them anymore. Mm -hmm. You know, this next generation coming up, it's purpose over purse strings. It truly is. Mm -hmm. And so we just did things different. Like, you know, we'd be driving home from work and we'd call our guys and be like, hey, thank you. Mm -hmm. Thank you for everything you do. Thanks for working your guts out every single day. But it was not during work hours. So they're at home getting a call from a coach thinking, wow, coach is thinking about me and he's not even at work right now. You know, we know every single one of their birthdays, their anniversaries, their, you know, Mike saved one of our guys. He, um, the guy was working late and Mike, you know, Mike gets the alert in his phone and he goes out back and he's like, you know, what are you still doing here? And he's like, oh, I'm trying to, you know, work on a couple things here and then I'm, I'm about done. And, and Mike's like, no, no, no you got to go now. And he's like, why is that? He's like, it's your anniversary. And this guy's wife is affectionately known as the warden and, and not a lady you want to disappoint, right? <laughs> and uh, he's like, no, it's not. And Mike's like, yeah, no, it is your anniversary. He's like, what day is it? And then you just saw this look of horror in this guy's face. <laughs> um, you know, but our, our theory behind that is like, we're asking a ton of these guys, mm -hmm. right? If we can help them with their life events, you know, there's nothing like going out to practice. We have 26 guys warming up and you put your hand on some guy's shoulder and be like, hey, don't forget it's your dad's birthday today. Mm -hmm. And there's no excuse not to do it now. With our phones and all this, all the technology right at our fingertips, um, to invest in someone and to inspire them, if, if you're not doing that, that's more laziness than or, or lack of intention. And you touched on it a little bit. So with with your all of your processes in place and your thought and your blueprint of how you're attacking both the deck leadership and your stuff at Ganassi as a coach. How often do you fine tune it? How often are you learning or relearning to see like, because I think the last thing you want to do is be static with yep. your, your message. Yep. Like how, how often do you tweak that? Every single day. Yep. Every single day. You know what I mean? Um, you know, my day starts off with a podcast every day. Um, you know, I'm, I, I'm lucky because I really, I find peace in reading. So mm -hmm. I read a ton. Um, and, and I think what you try to do is extrapolate some of the ideas um, or parse, partial bits of some of the ideas that could pertain to what we're doing. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and there's, believe me, there's a lot more smarter people than me out there. Right. Um, and if I think their advice can help us, we're going we're gonna to implement it or we're going to try to implement it and see how it flies. You know, we're, one thing at our place is everyone's voice matters, right? We have 26 guys. Every guy represents 126 of the equation for us to figure it out. Right. So we, you know, we'll sit them out at the end of the end of the year and, and they get to evaluate us just like we're evaluating them. And our program's been built off negative feedback. Mm -hmm. Right. Like, hey, I think we can do this better, this better, this better. And because I think because our egos are well placed, we're willing to listen to that. Because mm -hmm. so many people aren't, right? Like so many people um just they hear that that negative feedback and they, they instantly get their back up and um, but again, I think, you know, that some of the negative feedback has been the catalyst for, for our success. What are some of your favorite books? Oh, wow. Um, you know, obviously I think the, the default one is the alchemist just cause the story is, is mm -hmm. just incredible. Um, 
big fan of Michael Lewis, uh, Malcolm Gladwell. I just read Talking to Strangers. That book was. Mm-hmm. I just I like um, I like people that challenge the way we think, right? Mm-hmm. So that that are they're against the status quo. Like, are we doing this right? Are we? Um, you know, I'm a history fanatic, so I read a lot of that. Um, uh, you know, Confederates in the Attic was a pretty interesting book. Right. But, you know, coming from Canada, moving to the South, I found, um, <laughs> you know, I was enthralled with, with a lot of the things that go on. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, everything from, uh, you know, the, the Civil War history to the Civil Rights history to, um, you know, because I think, you know, there, there's a ton of lessons that, that can be had in all of it. Yeah. Um... Okay, so real quick, I know this was a hot topic when they first came in. Uh, the pit guns were failing. How are the guns doing now? Um, they've kind of stabilized. You yeah. know, I think um, you're used to such a high-performing piece when they first arrived mm-hmm. that I think a lot of it, um, you know, a, a lot of it uh, was like, you know, it's like going from a Ferrari to a, a Volkswagen. Yeah. Right. And so where right now in a pit stop is the place that you're going to focus on to try and make time? I can't tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's, I mean, obviously there's, there's a lot of, a lot of different places on the car now that we're identifying where mm-hmm. if, you know, if you're, if you're quick to this, um, mm-hmm. you know, but it's, it's interesting, you know, we try to educate people like, you know, you look at a NASCAR fan, um, their driver comes down pit road and he goes out comes in first and he goes out fifth yep. or comes in fifth and goes out tenth and instantly they're like oh the pit crew screwed up right well pit crew is four things <laughs> a pit crew is the execution of changing tires and wheels and applying gas to the race car yep. it's how the driver gets into the pit box and where he positions the car yeah it's the adjustments that the crew chief calls on the pit stop and it's how he leaves so yeah. there's really there's four things that are involved in a pit crew we're 25 percent of a pit stop yeah and um it's just interesting because we don't take 20% of the blame. <laughs> uh, we could probably do a few more of these, but uh, I think this is really good. But uh, thanks for stopping by. And um, uh, I encourage everyone to keep uh, a sharp eye on the pit stops even more now and really watch and see what's going on and, um, and understand that a lot of what those guys are doing transfer over to the corporate world as crazy as that sounds. Yeah. It, Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate it, Brad. Cool. Thank you.